I hope everybody had a great Christmas and New Year's. Uh, this is an awesome time of year. It's this block of time where we get to spend time with family and with friends, and maybe you had a little bit of time off work, and, and all those things that come together to make the holidays so much so much fun. And, and at Wildwood, we take advantage of that. Bruce mentioned this earlier, but we take advantage of this season to all come together in one worship service on a Sunday. Uh, we did that last week, and we did that today. But next Sunday, we'll be going back to our normal schedule, which is two morning services, one at 9 and one at 1040. And uh, we'll have our full adult fellowship groups running next week and Youth Wave as well. So uh, we will be back to that schedule next week. But we're excited that uh, the holidays have uh, allowed for us to get together in one room here this morning. Uh, before we look into God's Word together, though, uh, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for today. And we thank you for the time and the place that you have set aside here for us to worship you. Father, what a, a blessing it is to gather with your people in your house to worship you. And you receive that worship at your throne in heaven. Father, we don't understand how all of that works, but you have declared it so, and we're thankful. Father, we're thankful that we head into 2009 not as people alone, but as people who are together as the body of Christ and as people who are together with you as you lead us into the new year. And we are thankful for that. Father, I pray that you would guide our time now as we look into your word, that you would be our teacher. And Father, I pray that you would protect me from saying anything you would not want said. But Father, if I do say something this morning that you wouldn't want said, I pray that it would just quickly be forgotten. Father, any words that I say today that are your words and your truth, I pray that we would remember them, we would believe them, we would apply them in our lives, that we might be changed people more into the image of your Son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Monty Brewster received a phone call from his long-lost uncle. Actually, it was from his attorney, because his uncle had recently passed away. And Monty's uncle, he was long, and he was lost, and he was rich. He was very, very rich. As a matter of fact, he was so rich, he was going to leave a sizable inheritance to Monty for him to celebrate. But in order for Monty to claim his inheritance, he was going to have to complete a challenge. See, Monty's uncle wanted to see if Monty could handle the kind of resources he was going to give him. And so Monty's uncle gives him a challenge. He said, if you can spend $30 million in the next 30 days, and at the end of those 30 days have no assets that you've accrued. In other words, he couldn't save it, he couldn't invest it, he couldn't buy things that he would still own. If, if he, he could make it through 30 days and go through $30 million, then at the end of that 30-day challenge, Monty would inherit the full $300 million. And so Monty takes the challenge, and spoiler alert, he goes on and completes that challenge so that he inherits the full $300 million. Now, this story was actually first told back in 1902 in a novel called Brewster's Millions. It was actually told again in the 1985 movie, you might be more familiar with this, starring John Candy and Richard Pryor. 
But in this story, Monty inherits 30 million. If he can spend it in 30 days, he inherits 300 million. And he took the challenge. You know, I tell you that story because as we gather here today, we're going to have a similar challenge that we're going to issue, and I'm going to call it Wildwoods Millions. Wildwoods Millions. Today, we're going to issue a similar challenge in that I'm going to give you all 31 million. 31 million. That if you can spend in the next 361 days, then you will complete the challenge. Now, before you, you get too excited about this, uh, know that I'm not talking about money. Uh, it would be exciting if I was able to give you all $31 million each today, uh, but we can't do that. But instead, the $31 million I'm referring to is 31 million seconds. Do you realize that there are just over 31 million seconds between right now and December 31st, 2009? Just over 31 million. Now, depending on your personality, that's either really stressing you out right now, uh, or that sounds like an eternity. Uh, but you have just over, I'm just, just stating a fact, you have just over 31 million seconds. And if, if the Lord does not take you home, at the end of this year, when the clock strikes midnight on December the 31st, you realize that you will have spent 31 million seconds. It's an easy challenge to complete. You can't save time. You cannot save time. And so the question is, what are you going to do with your 31 million? Look, look at your watch for a second. Uh, uh, Mike Hargis, you have, you have a watch on? What time is it? 11.15. Okay, it's 11.15 up at this part of the room. Marshall Bracken, do you have a watch on? What time is it back there? It's 11.15 back there. You know what? If you check around the room, the watches all look different, but it probably all says the same thing. It's 11.15 right now. The question is not, will you have time? We all have time. The question is, what are we going to do with the time that we have? What will you do with the 31 million that you all have? Um, that is what we're going to talk about today. Because if you're like me, when you start a new year, it's time to begin to think and process, what do I want this year to be? And the reality is that we've got 31 million opportunities to see this year unfold. And, and God's Word does not leave us hanging in the wind when it comes to deciding how to spend the 31 million seconds uh, that we will be given as a matter of fact, God's Word in the book of Ephesians in chapter 5 actually gives us some specific uh, advice, direction concerning the time that we have. And so what I wanted to do today as we start 2009 together is look at that passage in Ephesians chapter 5 as we talk about Wildwood's millions. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 15 to 21. And in those uh, six verses, I think we'll see a couple of things that will be significant in helping us understand what we're to do with the millions that we've been given. So if you've got a Bible, open to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, beginning in verse 15. Ephesians 5, beginning in 15. It says this, it says, Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. 
because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, in those six verses, we get some very significant advice from God to us concerning the millions we've been entrusted with this year. And we're going to see two things this morning about that. Uh, the first thing that I want us to see is this, that when it comes to this, this year that we have been given, uh, that we should be wise guys, that we should be wise guys, that we should seek to employ wisdom within our lives. And we see that in verse 15 and then in verse 17. In those two verses, we see this admonition for us to be wise with the way that we live. Look at what it says in verse 15. It says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Uh, 17 echoes the same thought. And it says, Therefore do not be foolish or unwise, but instead be wise. And by application it means understanding what the Lord's will is. In other words, when we think of this year and the 31 million that we've been entrusted with, one thing that we ought to begin by doing is, is, is setting out to live a wise life. Setting out to live a wise life, to be a wise man or to be a, a wise woman. But, but what does it mean to be wise? You know, that's a word that we say a lot, but, but what does it mean? And, and more specifically, not just what do we think it means, but what does it mean when a biblical author uses the term wise? Because we might think that being wise means that we know a lot of stuff. That being wise means that we have lots of information packed inside our head. That being wise means that we can answer all the questions in Sunday school class. That being wise means that we know all the answers in Bible trivia and we can line up the order of all the books of the Bible. We could, we could come up with a scenario where being wise means having intellectual knowledge of something. But that definition of wisdom is not the definition that the Bible uses. Now, the definition that the Bible uses is that wisdom is skill at living. It has to do with the moral and the ethical spheres of life. How we live our lives. When we live our lives well, we live our lives with wisdom. Being wise has to do with how we live out our lives. We see that in a couple of different ways. Uh, first of all, just the very word order of verse 15. When you look at verse 15 in, in the NIV Bible, which I'm reading from, it says, be very careful then how you live. Uh, the, in reality, if, if you were to look at the word order in the original language, it actually puts careful and living side by side. It says, basically, make sure that you live carefully. Uh, the emphasis is on the fact that we would live out our lives in a careful and a thought-out kind of a way. We live our lives uh, that way. And when you take the, the whole context of Ephesians chapter 5, it also comes clear that what it's talking about with wisdom is that we would live our, our lives uh, in, in the moral and the ethical spheres in a way that honors God. Uh, in, in, in verse chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, uh, this is what it says. This is the overall context of the chapter. He says, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity 
or of greed, because these are improper for God's people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. In other words, the the context of all of chapter 5 has to do with how we live out our lives in the moral and the ethical spheres. So when we see in verse 15 this admonition to be wise and not unwise, really what he's saying is to live your lives in the moral and the ethical spheres the way God has intended you to live them. Uh, The book of Ephesians talks about how when we come to know Christ as our Savior, that we are, are purchased by Him, that we are included within His body, and that our identity is closely tied to the identity of Christ, that we are, are, are one in Him. And, and because of that, the, the, the idea of being wise is really living a lifestyle that's consistent with whose you are. If you are in Christ, then you should have a lifestyle, a moral and an ethical lifestyle that looks like the person of Christ. That's what it means to live a life of wisdom. You know, we all know this in our lives, that we can do many things, right? We can, there's lots of things that we can do, but there are certain things that we are created to do. You know, over, over Christmas, I uh, uh, spent some time uh, back in Bartlesville with family, and, and Kimberly's sister has a little boy that just turned four, and uh, on Christmas morning, he got this little Handy Manny toolbox. Uh, and if you don't know who Handy Manny is, you need to get to know Handy Manny. He's an interesting character. Uh, but he has a toolbox, and all of his tools talk. Um, and and that, as somebody who is tool-challenged, that would be very helpful for me if my tools could help me out in that way. But Handy Manny's tools can talk. And this little toolbox had all these tools in it that talked and, and said things about what they did. And it was, it was very interesting. The Phillips head screwdriver, for instance, is named Felipe. Um, it's great. But that, that toolbox, you know, all of those tools, it, you know, as you think about the tools in your tool shed in your house, they, they can do several things. I can take my Phillips head screwdriver and I can use it as a crowbar. It is possible for me to do that. But if I do that for a long time, I'm not going to get a lot of return for my work, and eventually that screwdriver will break. There's a lot of things that screwdriver can do, but there are certain things that that screwdriver was made to do. That Phillips head screwdriver is really good at screwing Phillips head screws into wood. It's really bad at being a crowbar. And when you think about the wisdom in life that God desires for us, the skill at living that God desires us, Uh, to to live out is the idea that God has created us to live life in a certain way and we can live life in lots of ways there are a lot of things that we can do but when we make decisions outside of the scope of what God wants us to do we can end up with not a good return on our lives or we can end up with lots of parts that are broken see the reality of living a life of wisdom is that we are living a life consistent with who we are in Christ. Living a life that is, verse 17 tells us, understanding what the Lord's will is for our lives. We're living a life consistent with the life that He has prescribed for us to live. This idea of understanding what the Lord's will is, I believe in chapter 5, is not referring to some kind of a mystery of God's will, not something that refers to who will I marry, what job should I take, those kinds of mysteries of God's will, but is referring to more the, the direction of, 
of the, the moral boundaries that God would have within our lives, the decisions that we would make in the moral and the ethical sphere, many of those things God has laid out very clearly for us in His Word. And understanding what the Lord's will is, is understanding what right and wrong really kind of look like in the Christian life and living inside of those boundaries. See, the idea here is that we would live a life of wisdom, that we would live a life of wisdom. And really, when you think about it, living a life of wisdom is the best kind of question that we can ask. Asking the question, is it wise or is it unwise, is really the best question that we can ask. Andy Stanley, who's a pastor in Atlanta, wrote a book called The Best Question Ever. And the best question ever, by his estimation, is this question, is it wise or is it unwise? He believes that's the best question that we can ask. And you know what? I think that he's, he's really right in a lot of ways. You know, if we walked into this year just asking ourselves a question, not is it wise or is it unwise, but if we ask the question only, is it always right or is it always wrong, then we could end up in some difficulty. Let me give you uh, some examples in this area. Uh, when, it, when it comes to being right or being wrong, there are certain things that are always right and there are certain things that are are always wrong. Uh, but sometimes the consequences for the wrong decisions that we make, um, or consequences for things, aren't, aren't as significant. Let me give you an example. Uh, when it comes to showing up someplace on time, uh, let's say you're going to an event that starts at 6 p.m. What time do you get there for that event? Well, a lot of it depends on what the event is. If there is a large consequence to be had by what time you show up, then you probably get there a little earlier. If, if, if it's an airline flight to the Orange Bowl in Miami, then you get there at 4 so that you're not late because there's a big consequence to missing that flight. There's lots of expense. There's a fun event on the other side. But if the event is much you know smaller let's say it's a party at a friend's house and you show up at 10 after 6 which in your mind is somehow on time then what's the consequence to that the consequence isn't that great so when do you leave your house five after six when the consequence is great you leave the house at 3 30 when the consequence is small you leave the house at six I was thinking about this yesterday. I officiated a wedding in Chickasha at 4.30. I left my house at 2. It doesn't take two and a half hours to get to Chickasha, but the consequence would be enormous for me if I was late getting to that wedding. You see, when, when, when you make decisions like that, you're not asking the question, is it right or is it wrong? Because you're not wrong until 6.01. But you're asking the question, is it wise or is it unwise? Is it wise to show up at the airport to leave for your flight to the national championship game 10 minutes before the flight leaves? No, it's not wise. Are you late? Well, not technically. But it's not wise to show up that late. See, in our lives, if we go into this year asking the question, is it right or is it wrong, then we'll begin to hedge lots of bets along the way. 
in justifying a lot of behavior in our heads that it's not really necessarily wrong, but it's certainly not wise. Now, let me give you an example. Let's just say, for instance, that you enter this year and you decide, you know what, I'm going to see some tremendous spiritual growth in my life in the area of internet pornography. This has been something that has, has, has bondaged me and tied me down over the last several years. And so I, I want to make uh, a change this year, and I'm not going to view pornographic material on my computer anymore in, 2000 and, in 2009. Now, now, right and wrong. You know, wrong in that situation is that let's define it as actually viewing something that any collection of people would determine that is pornographic material. And if you just say, I'm not going to do that, and that's the, the question is right or wrong, then I'm just not going to look at that. But you know what? You could convince yourself, but you know what? I really ought to try to watch as many movies as I can that get right up to that line. That get right up to that line. That are, that are provocative, but not pornographic. Now, is that right or wrong? Well, it's not wrong, but it's, it's probably not wise. That I want to surf around on the internet and get as, as many provocative pictures I can see that are, are not pornographic, they're just provocative. Well, is that right or wrong? Well, at least it's not wise. It's not wise to do that. Uh, we see this in all time in, in relationships if, if you're dating right now. You know, the, the question often comes up in a dating relationship. You know, well, how far can I go? How far should I go? What you're asking is, what is right and what is wrong when it comes to physical boundaries in a dating relationship? And, you know, if you, if you, if you ask that question, then, then really what you're, what you're asking is, you know, how far can I go right up to that line? When in reality, what you shouldn't ask is that. What you should ask is this, what is wise and what is unwise when it comes to to this area of that relationship. Because, you know what, it, it, it certainly is not necessarily wrong to do certain things. Maybe you could, could justify yourself with that, but we would never think that it is wise to do some of the things that we do. See, asking ourselves the question, is it wise or is it unwise, is an infinitely better question for us to ask than is it right or is it wrong? Because if we're asking the question about wisdom and, 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 and things that aren't, aren't wise, then we're never going to get to the point where we're right up to the edge and we fall over the cliff. And you know what the reality is when it comes to the moral and the ethical areas of our lives? There are big consequences to pay. Much bigger than missing a flight to Florida. You know, when you think about that trip, why do you leave early? You leave early so you make sure that you're not late. Why should you set some parameters in your life that go beyond right and wrong to prevent yourself from getting into some of the great consequences that are out there? Why should you take drastic steps if your issue is internet pornography, like not viewing the internet when you're alone by putting your computer in a public place, by installing some kind of monitoring software on your computer? Why would you do those things? Because you have to? Because it's right and wrong? No. Because it's wise. If that is part of what you struggle with, there's a wisdom issue that is based in there. And so when you think about this year, and when you think about the things that you hope to see God do in your lives this year, you need to ask the question, is it wise or is it unwise? 
That's the advice that we are given. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Ask yourself the wisdom question. If you want to grow in your relationship with God this year, it would make sense to spend some time in, in church services. It would make some sense to spend time reading God's Word. It would make sense to spend time around the people of God. Because you have to? No. Because it's wise. It's consistent with what you're wanting to see God do in your lives. It's the wisdom question. If you are hoping this year to see deep friendships formed with other believers at Wildwood or in your workplace or whatever, then maybe you should take some actions that will be consistent with that. Why? Because you have to? No, you don't have to. But it's wise to take action that is consistent with the things that we want to see happen. To get involved with a, a Sunday school class or a home small group here at Wildwood or, or whatever it might be. Invite people over to your house for dinner. Uh, go to lunch with others. See, there's a great question to ask. Is it wise? When you think about this coming year, one of the things that we need to think about with our 31 million is asking ourselves, what is the wise thing to do? A second thing I want us to see from this passage, though, is that when it comes to our 31 million, that we need to invest our time. We need to invest our time. And we see this beginning in verse 16. He says, "...making the most of every opportunity..." Because the days are evil. This idea of the days being evil uh, just has to do with we live in a time where sin is in the world. There are lots of, of negative things out there that are, are inviting us to take our time and invest them in frivolous or bad activities. And in light of that, verse 16 begins, make the most of every opportunity that we have. Though the word root behind this, make the most of every opportunity, is the idea of redeeming or investing the time that we have been given. You know, we began by talking about these 31 million seconds that are out there. And I think it's important for us to think about in the category of 31 million seconds. Because when it says, make the most of every opportunity, we realize just how many opportunities we have in the next year. And our problem is that we fail to remember that every moment is an opportunity. We begin to think that small amounts of time don't mean anything at all. Uh, you know, think about the way you go up and ask somebody for something. Uh, if, if you want to go ask somebody for something and you really want a positive answer, you'll say, hey, can I just have a second? What are we doing? We're saying the smallest amount of time we could devise, can I have a second? Well, who's going to say no to can I have a second, right? It's never a second, but that's what we say because we think, you know, if it's a small enough increment of time that people will agree to anything, you know? Hey, can I, can I have a second? Could you drive me up to Oklahoma City? You know, <laughs> like that's going to work, but, but we say things like that because what we want, what we, we, we think if we get it to the smallest amount of time, we, we don't believe that small amounts of time are important. And because we fall into the trap of thinking that small amounts of time are not important, then we end up seeing things that we want to do, things we want to accomplish, 
never materialize within our lives because all the moments slip by. Uh, Let me just throw out some examples to this. Uh, Let's say it takes 30 minutes to have dinner with your family. Say it takes 30 minutes to have dinner with your family. Now, is it a big deal to miss dinner with your family? One night? It's just 30 minutes. I'll get home later. It's not a big deal. 30 minutes. 30 minutes times 7 days times 52 weeks is 180 hours in the year. Doesn't seem like such a small deal anymore, does it? Just, can you imagine, uh, and I'm, I'm speaking to myself as much as I'm speaking to anybody else. You know, if, if you said, can I take 100, 180 hours away from your family this year? You would say, no way. Say, can I take 30 minutes away from your family? Absolutely. But if you make the decision over and over and over again to skip dinner, to work late, to be gone from the house, if you make that decision consistently over enough time, then that time is gone, and that time with your family is, has gone someplace, but it's not gone with the family. Just 30 minutes a day. Uh, think about this. What about 10 minutes of Bible reading a day? 10 minutes of Bible reading a day. What, what, is, what is the big deal about 10 minutes of Bible reading a day? I mean, to, to miss 10 minutes, no big deal, right? But you realize 10 minutes of Bible reading a day times 7 days in a week times 365 days in the year is 60 hours. 60 hours. Now, if we said, you know, I want to take 60 hours out of your time reading Scripture this year, that sounds significant, but just 10 minutes? Man, I'm going to hit the snooze. But the reality is that our life comes in every opportunity-type moments. We don't have 60-hour blocks very often, but we frequently have 10 minutes here, 15 minutes there, 30 minutes here. And over the course of a year, over the course of our 31 million seconds, all those add up to something significant. I think about the issue of prayer. Because if you spent just five minutes Monday through Friday praying for those in, in your need, just five minutes a day, Monday through Friday, praying for those things, that at the end of the year you would have spent an entire day in prayer. Just five minutes, just on weekdays. See, it's important for us to, to, to think about this issue of the time that God has given us. Now, you know, we can get neurotic with this right? We can get to the spot where, where we've got our daytimer for our daytimer, and we've got all these appointments, you know, blocked in, and all of our time is, 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 is crammed together, and we get totally stressed out if something goes one minute over, and all of that stuff. And I'm not suggesting that we get to that spot. I, I'm not suggesting that at all. And if you're prone that way, then time is probably not necessarily your problem, okay? I'm speaking to people like me, I'm speaking to people like me who tend to have much more of a free form to their life. If you have more of a free form to your life, then it's important to remember the value of small opportunities throughout the year. Because when you make small investments of time, when you make the most of every opportunity for a long period of time, it yields big rewards. You know, some of you know, I mentioned this a month ago or so, but Next Sunday, I'm, I'm, I'm running a marathon, and 
just the training for that is a great example of these small incremental investments over time. You know, if you've never done something like that, then it, it sounds like, well, I, would, I can never do that. Trust me, you can do it. If, you know, my motivation originally was that Oprah did it, okay? If Oprah can do it, then I can do it, right? Um, but but the, the reality is that the way that you get there is you don't just get out and go run 26 miles. You start with these little 10-minute, 15-minute, 20-minute, 30-minute blocks of exercise. When you do that over a long period of time, your body gets to a spot where you can accomplish a goal like that. It's just the way that God has, has put us together. You know, if I waited until today to start training for next week, and I said, you know what, my training program calls for 400 miles of training, so I'm just going to run from here to Biloxi, catch the flight to the marathon, we'll call it good. You can't do that. It just doesn't work that way. They're small investments over time. That's the way it is. If you're here today and you, you made the, the goal of 2009 to invest some time to grow spiritually, so you came to church and you're really disappointed that we didn't have two hours today because your plan was to stay through both services, right? You're going you're gonna to catch up, right? You're going to hear it twice. You're going to be ready to go. And, and next week you're going to do this. You're gonna, you know, in one week you're going to cram all of your spiritual you know, energy into one week to get caught up. It just doesn't work that way. This doesn't work that way. It, it's, I love how God set up a Sabbath. I love how there's an opportunity for us to worship weekly because these small investments over long periods of time pay off incredibly. You see, God loves us so much that he wants to remind us that our days are filled with opportunities. And he wants us to make the most of the opportunities that he's given to us. But, but what does it mean to make the most of the opportunities? Well, it means to live a wise life. We saw that earlier. But if we're going to invest our time, is there something more that this passage gives us? And this passage definitely gives us something more. This passage gives us not just an admonition to invest our time wisely, but it gives us an incredible gift to help us to invest our lives in the places that God wants us to invest them. And that is a reminder that we have this gift that is the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, verse 18 says this. It says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, when it comes to investing our lives, there's a command that is given. There's one command that is given in this passage. And that is to not be filled with wine, but to be filled or controlled by God's Spirit. In other words, when it comes to living a wise life, we're not left to our own devices, but God has actually placed within us this gift of His Holy Spirit that He wants to help control us to motivate us, to empower us to live the life that He has called us to live. It's really an, an awesome, awesome thing when it comes to this gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, if some of you are very familiar with this idea of the Holy Spirit. Others, it's maybe a nebulous concept that you've never thought a lot about. But, but God's Holy Spirit is one part of the Trinity. Our, God has revealed Himself to us as one God who exists in three persons eternally. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. 
And when Jesus ascended back into heaven, Jesus said, I'm going to send one who will come and who will be with you forever, who will show you and highlight truth for you to understand, who will empower you to live the life that I'm calling you to live, and who will be my presence with you from now on into eternity. He says, that is the Holy Spirit of God. The book of Ephesians, a little earlier in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, talks about how this Holy Spirit that God has given is in the lives of every single person who has professed faith in Christ. If you're a Christian here today, if you are trusting in the work of Jesus Christ to provide forgiveness for your sins, then you right now have inside of you, on the inside, the presence of God's Holy Spirit who is there with you. And just as somebody might be able to consume alcohol that would then be a controlling influence in their lives, causing them to slur speech, to stammer around, to have liquid courage, whatever you want to say, just as it's possible for somebody to consume alcohol that would then control them, the book of Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that when the Spirit of God, when we, we are filled up with that, that it is also a controlling influence from the inside out. Unlike alcohol, though, which must be drink, you know, we have to drink it in for it then to be there, and it has a temporary effect, God's Holy Spirit is fully poured into our hearts at the moment that we trust in Christ, and it's always there, waiting for us to relinquish control, depend on Him, and allow Him to work within our lives. And so if the Holy Spirit is present within your life, as Ephesians 1 talks about, and as Ephesians 5 encourages us to relinquish control to, if the Holy Spirit is present within our lives, how do we know it's there? How do we know it's there? It, it, we know that the Spirit is present and active. Will we get like some kind of a tingling sensation? Is that when we'll know? I mean, that's the way I might think that it might be. Right? That when, when God kind of comes over me, that I get the shakes, or, or I, I see stars, or, or a halo appears. Um, you know, maybe I've played too many video games. You know, that, that, that's what happens in video games when characters get superpowers or something like that. They, they turn to different color or something. But, but there's something in me that maybe thinks that when the Spirit of God is going to become active in my life, that I'll feel it in some kind of a, a shaky kind of way. But that's not what Ephesians 5 tells us will happen. Ephesians 5 tells us that when the Spirit of God is controlling us, that something different will happen. As a matter of fact, it talks about four things that will happen. I mentioned that there is just this one command, to not be filled with wine, but to be filled or controlled by the Spirit. Then there's four uh, participles that are mentioned in the following verses that tie back to the work of the Spirit. In other words, when the Spirit is controlling, these four things are things that you should be able to see. What are those four things? One of them is that there would be speaking. There would be speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. When the Spirit of God is present and active, when the Spirit of God is controlling the, lives of a believer, the life of a believer, then there would be, it, would, it would affect the communication between believers. It would affect the communication between believers so that when I communicate with you, if the Spirit of God is at work in my life, then you would be encouraged, you would, you would be edified, you would be pointed towards Christ. There would, be, there would be psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Encouraging things would be what would be coming out at those points when the Spirit of God is at work in my life or in yours. 
Another thing is that there will be singing. Singing and making music in your hearts to the Lord. In other words, there will be something that would affect our communication, not just with each other, but our communication with God. When the Spirit of God is active and controlling in our lives, then we are praising Him. We're giving Him the credit for what's going on in our lives. That we're, we're singing audibly, as we did earlier in the service. We're singing internally in our hearts. When the Spirit of God is at work in our lives, we should expect not just to have some tingling sensation, but that it would affect our communication with each other and our communication with God. Furthermore, there would be giving of thanks. It says they're always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. There would be a sense of gratitude that would come over our hearts and our lives. How do I know when the Spirit of God is at work? Is there a sense of gratitude before the Lord? Are we giving thanks to Him on a regular basis? And then the last participle is, is that of submitting. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is a very famous verse, verse 21, because it is a hinge. Verse 21 is a hinge, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's a hinge that connects what just was said with what is getting ready to be said. In other words, when the Spirit of God is present in our lives, that there's not an attitude that exists within our hearts, the hearts of someone who's controlled by the Spirit, there's not the attitude that exists that says, you exist for me, you exist to serve me, you exist to do what I want you to do. But in, in reality, when the Spirit of God is at work, then we have an attitude towards one another that says that I'm going to place your wants, needs, and desires above my own. And this verse is a hinge because it's tied to the work of the Spirit, but then it's further described in the way that husbands relate to wives. Wives relate to husbands. Children relate to parents. Bosses relate to employees. Employees relate to bosses. Those six different relationships are highlighted from chapter 5, verse 22, through chapter 6, verse 9. And what that tells me is that when the Spirit of God is operative, when the Spirit of God is controlling within our lives, that what happens is that those who are around us can tell. Our, our husbands can tell. Our wives can tell. Our kids can tell. Our bosses can tell. Those who we work with can tell. When the Spirit of God is present within our lives, we, we should not expect just to feel some kind of tingling sensation in our body, but we should expect that those around us would have a sense that God is at work in the situation. They would have a sense of encouragement. They would have a sense of, of, of comfort and care. They would have a sense that God is involved in our lives. See, when it comes to making the most of every opportunity, what that ultimately will break down to for us by the end of the year is that there will be a sense in the interpersonal, relational areas of our lives that God is at work in and through our hearts in every moment that we live. See, that's what it means to live a wise life. So the question is, how does this happen? How does it happen that our, our lives become controlled by God's Spirit so that we can have the impact in the relational spheres of our lives? What happens through a process of faith and trusting in God? You know, the picture that, that, that I think of is one of a, of a sailboat. You know, a sailboat that is sitting in the water 
with the mast up, but the sail down is going no place. Right? How does a sailboat in the water with the mast up, but the sail down, get to moving anywhere on that lake? The sail has to be raised. And when the sail is raised, the wind catches the sail and propels it forward. And when it comes to living the spiritual life, when it comes to living a life that is controlled by God's Spirit, I think of something very similar happens. See, the mast in our lives is the daily life that we have, the 31 million that we've got. The sail that we raise are the steps of obedience that we take in line with what we see revealed to us in God's Word. When we live a life consistent with God's revealed word, it is as though we're saying, God, I'm trusting that your way is the best way, and I will raise the sail for you. But just doing those things is not enough, because we're not going to be perfect, we can't live all those things out. Ultimately, if all we were doing was living an obedient life, we'd be no different than any other religious system in the world. But the difference in Christianity is that when we raise the sail of obedience, that the Spirit of God that resides within us fills that sail and propels us forward in the direction that God wants us to go. That God gives us the power to live the life that He has called us to live. So when it comes to your life this year, think about the things that you want to see happen. Think about what does God's word say about the year that is sitting in front of me. And then when you, when you think about that, ask the question, what is the, the, the wise decisions that I can make in every moment of my life that are consistent with the places where I want to go? And as you make those decisions, raise that sail in obedience. But as you raise that sail, praise God. And pray for him to fill that sail and to propel you in the direction that he has called you to live. See, we're Wildwoods millions. 31 million times 500 in this room is math that I can't compute. But there's a lot of opportunity. A lot of opportunity. May God fill our sails as we head that way. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this time, and I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the opportunity to look at it together. Father, we have taken several of our seconds in this year to begin with this meditation, and Father, I pray that as we leave here, that we would leave as people who are living a wise life, raising our sail according to the obedient steps that you're guiding us to. And Father, I'm so thankful that we do not have to conjure up the energy, the effort on our own, but you have loved us so much that you have given your spirit inside of us to fill our sail and to propel us in the directions that you have for us. We thank you. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.